So it's Easter Sunday and the events of that first Easter Sunday and the implication of those events fill 1 Corinthians chapter 15, don't they? And the question is, why? Why, when Paul is finishing up his letter to the church at Corinth, does he make the resurrection of Christ from the dead the last major issue that he deals with? First point then, face your doubts. And from what Paul writes here, it seems like some people in the church at Corinth were denying or at the very least doubting the resurrection. Look at verse 12. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? So it seems that their doubt was around the final resurrection of the dead at the end of time. The problem is, is that when you begin to question one thing, other things logically follow, don't they? You start pulling away at the thread and the thread keeps growing. Verse 13, if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. I mean, if resurrection doesn't happen, Paul says, or can't happen, as some of you seem to be saying, then Christ also hasn't been raised from the dead. But it's not as if the Corinthians were the first or the last to doubt the resurrection, were they? On that first Easter Sunday, it was the group of women around Jesus who were the first to visit his tomb. But instead of finding his body, they found the tomb empty and they ran back to tell the disciples, the men, only to be met with unbelief. Luke chapter 24, verses 10 to 11. They told these things to the apostles, but these words seemed to them an idle tale and they did not believe them. Because after all, who in their right mind would believe that a dead man could walk out of his tomb? And then look at the two disciples on the road to Emmaus from our first reading. They are filled with grief following the execution of the one they hoped would be the Messiah. And they also don't believe the women. Verse 21. We had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. To which Jesus, meeting them, says, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe. But doubt and disbelief didn't die on the road to Emmaus, did they? The atheist Richard Dawkins famously said of Christianity, it all really comes down to the resurrection of Jesus. It has a fundamental incompatibility with the sophisticated scientist. It's so petty, it's so trivial, it's so local, it's so earthbound, it's so unworthy of the universe. But you don't have to be an atheist to harbor doubts, do you? I mean, maybe, you even have your doubts. Did Jesus really rise from the dead? 
Well, if that's you this morning, however small or however nagging those doubts might be, I want to help you doubt those doubts. So think, why did the first disciples and then these Christians in Corinth doubt? And what does Paul say to address that? Well, for the apostles and the disciples on the road to Emmaus, frankly, it's obvious, isn't it? They had seen Jesus die. And they knew they had probably seen more than once what crucifixion did to a man. It was, it is, a horrendous form of execution. It is a truly cruel and unusual punishment. And they had stood and watched Jesus, who had been flogged within an inch of his life with a Roman scourge. They had watched him be nailed to a cross and suspended in the air, fighting for breath. And they'd watched him breathe his last breath. And they'd watched as a soldier took a spear and shoved it into his side. And one of those disciples, John, had stood close enough to the cross to be able to distinguish the blood that flowed from Jesus' side from the water, the fluid of a pleural or pericardial effusion that followed. And they had handled his dead body. They knew Jesus was dead. They doubted because of the physical fact of death. Now, maybe that's true for you. You struggle with the seeming impossibility of resurrection. Now, the Christians at Corinth were different, weren't they? They doubted because of the cultural water that they swam in. And in tackling their doubts, Paul writes, verse 33, do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. It's a quote from a Greek play. Wake up from your drunken stupor, as is right, and do not go on sinning, for some have no knowledge of God. Okay, so the reason that they're doubting is because of the company that they're keeping, the cultural water they're swimming in. Because in any relationship, there is a flow of influence, isn't there? You can influence your friends, but they can also influence you. And if you think about it, the area of influence is precisely in the area of how we think, of our beliefs, of what we think is right or wrong, plausible or implausible, the way you see the world or don't see it. Your beliefs and your behaviours are always a product of the cultural relational water that you're swimming in. And in Greek pagan culture, what their friends and neighbours outside the church would have just taken for granted was that your physical body really doesn't matter. What really matters is your spirit, you on the inside. And at death, you would finally be freed of your body. Now, if that's the water that you're swimming in, it's no wonder they doubt the physical resurrection, is it? Because why would you want that? But if you find yourself doubting the resurrection, ask yourself, am I doubting just because everyone else is doubting? 
is, am I doubting because that's the water, the cultural water that I'm swimming in that tells me that to believe this is crazy? You see, look how Paul answers them. Verse 34, some have no knowledge of God. In other words, their doubts about the resurrection were really because of their doubts about God. Their knowledge, their understanding of God was defective. I mean, when Paul was put on trial before King Agrippa, he said to him, why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? You see, any doubts that we might have about the resurrection, whether that's because of the finality of death or because of the culture we swim in, Paul says, says more about us and the God we believe in than about the God who is. Because why do you think he could struggle to raise the dead? Is your view of God too small? Do you think he's like you or your friends or our philosophers or political leaders, impotent in the face of death? I mean, with all our modern science, we struggle to keep people alive, let alone bring them back from the dead. But what if God is infinitely greater than us? What if your God is too small? What if nothing is impossible for him? What if he really is the God of life, not death? What if he sees death as an enemy intruder in the perfect world that he created, in his good world? What if you were to meet him as the prophet Isaiah once did, and you were to become intensely aware of your smallness and impotence and were to cry out like Isaiah, woe to me, I am undone. Paul is saying, don't make God in your image. Doubt your doubts. Why do you think it incredible that he might raise the dead? Think instead what might just be possible if he really is the omnipotent God of life. Second point, know the truth. Look at verses three to four. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Now, when it comes to Christianity, there are some things that it is okay to disagree on. The death and the resurrection of Jesus are not among them. This is of first importance, Paul says. And into the courtroom of what you believe, Paul brings three witnesses. Firstly, the witness of scripture. Christ died in accordance with scripture and he was raised in accordance with scripture, Paul says. The Old Testament told us that this was going to happen, so believe its testimony. 
Now, I don't know, maybe you hear that and think, Martin, saying that we are to believe the Bible because we believe the Bible is hardly a reason to believe the Bible. That is an a priori faith commitment. That's circular reasoning. Sure, but scientific rationalism can't do any better, can it? It tells you that we don't admit anything that cannot be proven reproducibly or scientifically in the lab. But that too is an a priori faith commitment. It's a belief in the way that we should see and assess and evaluate the world around us. And the atheist says there is no God and no resurrection, not because he or she can prove that, he never can, but because he believes them not to be true. And Paul is saying, when it comes to what you are going to believe, look at what the Bible says. Admit this as evidence. Now, Paul wasn't the first to make that case, was he? Look at what Jesus says to these two doubting disciples on the road to Emmaus. Luke 24, verses 25 to 27. O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. It's interesting, isn't it? Jesus could have said, hello, it's me, risen from the dead, but he doesn't. He takes them first to the Old Testament and says, look at the lives of the patriarchs. Look at the history of God's people. Look at the law and the Psalms and the prophets and see how throughout history, God has been building up to this moment. See all of the pieces begin to fall into place. Where might he have taken it then? to Genesis 3 and the promise that the offspring of woman would crush the serpent's head, but in the process he too would be crushed, to the call on Abraham to sacrifice his son, his only son, the son that Abraham loved, but then a ram is caught in the thorns by its head and given as a substitute, or maybe Maybe he took them to the life of Joseph, seemingly coming back from the dead, but in the process saving a nation. Or did he take them to the Passover and a lamb sacrificed so that God's people can be rescued from judgment? Maybe he took them to the law and the provision of animal sacrifices for sinners. Or to the day of atonement when a scapegoat would be sent away so that a sinner could be brought back in. Or to the Psalms, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Or to Isaiah, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace and with his wounds we are healed. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. 
he shall see his offspring, he shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. Where could Jesus not have turned? Where could he not have taken them and said, this is all about me? And then ask yourself, what makes most sense of this? This book written by multiple authors over multiple centuries, that Jesus died and his body rotted, or that he died and rose again. And as you read this and hear this, like these two disciples, your heart burns within you. Okay, but secondly, Paul calls on the witness of the tomb, verse four. He was buried. Now that is Paul saying he really did die because you only bury dead people, don't you? No, you might say. There are these stories that we read in the press of people in mortuaries coming back to life. Sure, but they have not been scourged with a Roman scourge and their backs ripped off. They've not been crucified and hung on a cross for hours. And they've not had a spear rammed into their side, rupturing their hearts. And they have most certainly not been through all of that and then walked out of the mortuary, convincing everyone that they met that they are the Lord of life. Doubt your doubts, Paul is saying. He was buried. He died. But then comes the third witness, the witness of the witnesses, verses five to eight. He appeared to Cephas, Peter, then to the 12. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. Look, says Paul, Peter, the other apostles, James, Jesus' brother, 500 others, and I, we can all tell you, we saw him alive again. And most of us are still alive. So interview us if you want. And Paul could have added other names to the list, couldn't he? Mary Magdalene, Joanna, the other Mary, to name just a few. Why doesn't he? because they were women. And in the Roman world, their testimony would never have been admitted to court. So why do the gospels all tell us that it was the women who were the first to see Jesus alive again? Why do they tell us that? Because they were the first to see Jesus alive again, because you just wouldn't make that up. And Paul says, the testimony of my changed, upturned life alone should tell you this really did happen. Verses 9 to 10. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God I am what I am, and his grace toward me 
was not in vain. I was once intent on destroying people just like you, Paul says. And I would not be sat here now writing to you about Jesus' resurrection if that same risen Lord Jesus had not turned my life upside down. And the fact that Paul and all but one of the other apostles were martyred and went to their death saying, we saw him alive again. That should do more than make us doubt our doubts. That should make us trust the truth. And as you do, the resurrection, it really does has, have the power to change everything. Last point, live the difference. Now, the one thing that Richard Dawkins and Paul would agree on is that it really all does come down to the resurrection. Look at verses 14 to 19. If Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Now, no one could accuse Paul of soft peddling Christianity, could they? He sees very clearly what modern liberal theologians fail to see, that Christianity with a dead Christ is utterly useless. It is without value. Your faith is in vain. Your guilt remains. You're still in your sins. And the life you live as a Christian is meaningless. You are wasting your life if Christ has not been raised from the dead. But, verse 21, but in fact Christ has been raised from the dead. So live life in the light of that. Firstly, live knowing that your sins are forgiven. Now, some weeks back I read something a social commentator in the US had written. She's not a believer, but she said that our current culture has never been more condemning of people who it thinks have sinned. But it has also never offered so little in the way of atonement or forgiveness. It just cancels them or unfollows them or insists on a penance of public humiliation. And Paul would say, yes, but Jesus is very different. Look again at verse 3. Christ died for our sins. And in verse 17, he says that if Christ hasn't been raised, you are still in your sins. But he has been raised, so you're not still in your sins. What our current culture refuses to give you, Christ does. He doesn't cancel you. He doesn't unfollow you. Instead, he lifts you out of your sins. He is cancelled. He is forsaken. He is unfollowed for you. And it's in him that you will find forgiveness and atonement. It's in him that your burden of guilt is lifted off you. And that's what Paul knew. 
You see, like all of us, Paul knew that he was guilty, least of the apostles, not worthy of being called an apostle, persecutor of the church. I mean, Paul knew that back in Jerusalem, there were children growing up without their fathers. There were wives without husbands because of him. He knew his shame and disgrace, just like any of us who can look back on our past with deep regret. But Paul also knew the power of the death and the resurrection of Christ to turn his disgrace to grace. And Paul says that because of Jesus' death and resurrection, you too stand in grace. And Jesus' grace has this power not just to remove our sin, but to turn it for good. So secondly, live knowing your life is full of meaning. You see, grace humbles us. Good Friday and Easter Sunday tell us we are so sinful, Jesus needed to die for us. So the death of Christ has this power to kill the proud Pharisee in us. But the resurrection of Christ tells us that his sacrifice has been accepted. It tells us that we are forgiven and loved and accepted by God, our Heavenly Father. So it makes us humble, but it also makes us confident. And that humility combined with confidence gives you an inner power to go out into the world and serve God and others. It's why Paul says in verse 10, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of the other apostles, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. You see, when you know that God has shown you a love that you could never deserve, it doesn't make you passive, does it? But it also doesn't leave you desperately trying to pay it back, desperately trying to prove your worth, desperately trying to deserve it in some way. Such a love, an undeserved gracious love, leaves you profoundly grateful. It leaves you wanting to love and serve him in return, not to deserve it, but simply because he is worth it. And that fills your life and your work with meaning. It's why Paul finishes this chapter talking about your work or your studies. Verse 58. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labour is not in vain. Christ is risen, Paul says. He is reigning on high. So how could anything you do for him be in vain? So, live knowing that you are forgiven. Live knowing that your life is full of meaning. And finally, live knowing that death is defeated. Verse 22. 
For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. You know, in chapter 5 of Genesis, we get the first genealogy of the Bible. It's a list of Adam's descendants. And time and again, it says, and he died, 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 and he died. Because Adam's genealogy is a genealogy of death. The world that was created pregnant with life has become little more than a waiting room for the graveyard. But Paul says, a second Adam to the fight and to the rescue came, and his genealogy, the genealogy of Jesus, us as his descendants reads, and he will live, and she will live, and she will live, and he will live. It's the genealogy of life, not death because at the cross Christ took the curse of death upon himself and defeated it there. And so Paul says, verses 54 to 57, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. So live in the truth of that, especially at a time when the fear of death stalks the world. Live knowing that death has no fear for you. Live knowing that this life is just a shadow of the resurrection life yet to come. Live knowing that your sins are forgiven. Live knowing that your life has meaning. Live knowing that death is defeated. Why? Because Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Hallelujah.